We appreciate your attendance here this morning, whether you're a member or whether you're a visitor. We're thankful that you're here, and our hope and our prayer is that something that we say or something that we do here today will be a source of strength and encouragement to you, and you can leave here saying that it was good to have been in the house of the Lord this morning. I appreciate the song Shannon happened to select today because they relate very closely to the message we want to bring this morning. Uh, Mansion over the hilltop, uh, the glory land way. This past Thursday marked a day that is celebrated in uh, many religious groups as Ascension Day, the annual commemoration of that occasion when the risen Lord bodily ascended back to be with the Father some 40 days after the resurrection. We read about that event in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse number 9, and I'll read it to you there, if I can ever open up to that page. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's that statement that those heavenly messengers made in response to the disciples gazing there longingly into the sky that I want us to think about for a few moments this morning. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Nineteen centuries ago, in the earliest days of the church, Christians commonly used an expression that we seldom, if ever, hear today. It was the word in Aramaic, Maranatha. That means, our Lord, come. It was a phrase that was spoken verbally. We find it recorded at the end of documents. For example, if you were to turn to 1 Corinthians and read down to the bottom of chapter 16, you'd find it there. Some translations will translate it as our Lord comes. Some will just have the transliteration Maranatha. We found it inscribed in catacombs and in other places. It was constantly on the hearts, on the minds, on the tongues of the earliest Christians. It was a sort of prayer. Our Lord, come. Christianity began in the Roman world. And that minute began in a pagan world. Christians experienced social ostracism at best. At worst, they experienced persecution. And always there was this sense of tension, anxiety, what they might encounter from outsiders. Those negative conditions encourage that desire for the Lord to come speedily. In addition to that, the earliest Christians lived what we would consider to be a very meager existence. They didn't have an abundance. They didn't have luxuries that we simply take for granted today. They had only the bare necessities. 
Everyone in the first century lived in conditions that we would simply find to be intolerable in our contemporary society. You add to that the fact that so many of those first Christians were slaves, and you can see even more reason why they might look forward to a life to come, to give up this world for that better one. Most significantly, I think we can understand this longing of the early church because they had listened to what Christ and what the apostles had taught about eternal life. They had this deep sense of the untarnished joy that awaited them, and they longed for that. They greeted that prospect enthusiastically. We have less fear. Less, fear, less persecution, less suffering than those early Christians. It goes without saying that we live lives of greater abundance than they had. We have, even the poorest among us, things that they would have considered to be luxuries beyond their wildest imagination. The contrast between our earthly existence and eternal life is then maybe not as sharp as it was in the minds of those early Christians. Consequently, I think that for the most part, we don't really long for that return of Christ in the same way that they did. We don't say, Maranatha, our Lord, come. But I'm convinced that we all need to have a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation to take more seriously the blessings that are offered in the life to come and the consequences that are there for those who are separated from God, eternally lost. So I want us to read together at length some passages from the New Testament today. This will be one of those lessons where we're doing more reading than anything else. And uh, you can follow along in your Bible or you can just listen closely because not all of these will be on the slides, only the most pertinent parts. But I want us to read through some of these passages in the New Testament that talk about the coming of the Lord, because I believe that a, a clearer vision of that will encourage each and every one of us to make sure that we're ready when he comes back. Now, there are many passages in Scripture that talk about the return of Jesus, and some of these are just incidental. That is, it's mentioned in passing when the text is actually focused primarily on something else. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're reading about the Lord's Supper. Daniel referenced this earlier in his communion meditation. But we find an emphasis on the coming of the Lord also. In verse number 23, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul points out, as Daniel did, that one of the primary purposes in our eating the Lord's Supper is remembering the death of Jesus. 
But then he adds there in verse number 26 another reason for eating it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's that certainty, that confidence. It's taken for granted. One day he's coming back. We find another sort of incidental emphasis like this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the last letter that Paul writes. He's an old man imprisoned in Rome writing to the young preacher Timothy. And if you remember, he says, I'm now ready to be offered, or literally, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Those who will be saved, those who will be awarded that crown of righteousness, are those who have looked forward to the coming, the appearing of the Lord. We could mention some other passing references like this. I just want us to get the idea that it's so ingrained in Christians that they mention it in passing. It's taken for granted as a fact. Jesus is coming back. But I want us to focus primarily this morning on places where this topic is discussed in depth. So in addition to these brief indications that Christians expected Jesus' return, there are these passages where it is central to what's being talked about. And Matthew chapter 25 is probably the best example that we have at length. Every bit of this chapter talks about the return of Jesus. So it opens in verse number one with the parable of the ten virgins. You remember there were five who were foolish. They hadn't made proper preparations for the return of the bridegroom. But then there were five who were wise because they were ready, expecting him to come. And the parable ends in verse number 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. One day he's coming back. Next we find in this chapter the parable of the talents. And if you remember this story, it's about a Lord who distributed some of his wealth to his servants and then he went away on a journey. But one day that Lord returned to settle up accounts, as it says there. Uh, in verse number, oh, where is it? It says he returned to settle up. There we go, verse number 19. <laughs> the Lord returned there to settle up accounts. The men who received five talents and two talents, those two men were rewarded because of their faithfulness. On the other hand, that one talent servant was punished. He was sent away into outer darkness because of his unfaithfulness. But the final picture here in Matthew chapter 25 is this extended portrayal of the last judgment. And this is the most extensive picture we have of judgment in all of the New Testament. And I'll read to you at, at length from it, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
On the other hand, if you go down to verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the chapter wraps up on this note in verse 46. These, on his left hand, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In the previous chapter of Matthew, if you were to flip back to chapter 24, our Lord says, beginning in verse number 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The emphasis here, again, is on that unexpectedness of Christ's return. So you need to be ready, be alert, be vigilant. But maybe the dearest of all these passages is found in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. This is what Jesus has to say to his disciples on the very last night before his crucifixion. This is a passage most of us know. John 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. There's where that song comes from. Or many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It should warm our hearts to know that the Lord has gone to prepare a place for us. That should bring us comfort. But that should also encourage us, warn us to prepare ourselves so that we might be ready for that place he's preparing for us. As we grow a bit older, as our physical faculties begin to fade, I think it's encouraging to remember the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Just a few Verses later, he adds down in verse number 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, some of the early Christians had lost loved ones. 
And so they begin to worry that since they'd already passed on, they wouldn't be able to take part in this resurrection when the Lord came back. They'd miss this promise of everlasting life. And so Paul writes to comfort these people in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's going to come back. Therefore, we should be comforted. We should be encouraged, Paul says. But several decades after his death passed, more than a decade after Paul wrote this letter passed, and he still hadn't come back. And so some Christians evidently started to worry. They wondered, well, maybe we misheard him. Maybe we misunderstood what he'd promised. And some critics out in the world scoffed at this idea that (laughs) this Jesus was ever going to return. They made fun of Christians over that. Their hope was pure imagination. So in response to that situation, Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Know that first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's imperative that we come to Christ, that we allow him to cleanse us from our sins, that we endeavor to walk in his footsteps and live holy lives thereafter so that someday we may be worthy of escaping eternal destruction. Someday we can look forward to that new heavens and new earth that Peter mentions here. 
that realization that judgment is coming along with a returning Jesus should be a great encouragement, an impetus toward holy living for us. But more than that, I think for those of us who are Christians, it should bring us comfort. Batsel Barrett Baxter was a great preacher of the 20th century. Some of you probably know that name. He was the speaker on the Herald of Truth program for many years. Baxter once told the story of a dear Christian friend of his, a lady who was over 90 years old and who was on her deathbed. She was bedridden. Several years before, she'd lost her husband, who was her loving companion for more than 60 years. She didn't have any children to love her and to care for her in her old age and her infirmity. And so Baxter was there at her bedside, and with tears in her eyes, she asked him, Brother Baxter, is it wrong for me to want to die and to go to heaven? See, some of her friends had chided her because she'd expressed that desire. Now, she needed to want to live. And Baxter said, no, it's not wrong. It's Christian. Without being dissatisfied here in our present life, without taking for granted all of the gifts that God has given us, and without lessening our efforts for the cause of Christ here on this earth, let's all look forward to eternal life. Let's all look forward to the Lord's coming. Let's use the gifts God's given us here. Let's appreciate life. Let's endeavor to do useful work. Let's endeavor to live for the cause of Christ. Let's appreciate the beauties of this world. Let's love and care for our families, but let us also look forward to a better life to come. And let us make every effort to ensure that we're ready when the Lord calls us. Whether he calls us before he returns through death or whether we're alive to see that great day when he does come back, may all of us live out in our lives, may we vocalize, think about that prayer of the early church. Maranatha, our Lord, come. But of course, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not prepared for that day. You ought not to be looking forward to that day of his return with anticipation, but with fear, because you'll be in those on the left hand who are sent away into outer darkness, into eternal punishment. If that's you today, I want to encourage you to make the changes you need to make to be in that right relationship with God. Put your faith, your trust in Jesus. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried in the waters of baptism. Have your sins washed away and be able then to look forward to the return of Christ and that eternal home that's promised you. If you're here this morning, you are a Christian. Are you ready if Jesus were to come back today? Or do you need to make changes in your life in order to be right with him? Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.